0: Well, good morning. Welcome again to the live stream at South Suburban Christian Church. My name is Pastor Ike Nicholson, and I am honored that you are taking the time to gather together with other believers. If you're listening to us on one of our other platforms instead of our online.church platform, thank you for taking time out of your day to be here uh, to listen, to worship, to focus your heart and mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things continue to uh, advance here at South Suburban Christian Church. You met last week our new communications coordinator, Christine Helms, and we are so grateful to have her on board. Uh, thank you for welcoming her. Uh, this week, we'd like to let you know that we have also um, called to serve with us a new church business administrator, uh, Ken Bright-Cruz. Uh We welcome him. Uh, many of you know him he was our past president here at south suburban christian church president of the congregation the governing board and so he will be joining our staff as he uh, uh, accepts his ministry of working with the day-to-day activities and uh, seeking to ensure that all of the administrative aspects of our congregation are dealt with in the highest level of professionalism and in accordance with our faith together Uh, I'd invite you to, to send him an a, a email as well, ken.brightcruise at southsuburban.com. Um, if you want to check the spelling of that last name, just go to our website at southsuburban.com. Click on the staff page, and a link will be there for you to send him an email. But I know that he'd appreciate knowing of your thoughts and prayers. Our text today comes from the Gospel According to Matthew, Uh, It's Matthew chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue in our series. This is our 10th message in this series. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. Just a few verses as we uh, are attentive to God's word today. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus laid his hands on them and went away. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Man, the Three little verses. Three little verses in the Gospels, and yet they have become one of the most favorite and impactful scenes in all of the stories of Jesus. When we think about all of the images that you might have seen with Jesus uh, on the cross with his disciples at the Last Supper, one of the favorite images that we see is Jesus surrounded by children. It's on the covers of children's Bibles. It's on posters and pictures that can be hung in children's rooms. And it is, frankly, probably one of the most enduring scenes and endearing scenes of our faith together. Well, you know that I tend to enjoy dabbling a little bit in the history of art. And we don't really see a lot of paintings about with Jesus and children until the early 1800s there's a few but the probably best known painting uh, is uh, by a painter that probably no one knows uh, Carl Christian Vogel von Vogelstein and in 1805 he painted a painting entitled let the little children come to me It is a powerful image that really gave rise to many of the subsequent paintings of Jesus with children. And it is really, in many ways, a visual summary of the essence of what Christianity has taught about children. I'm gonna share with you a little bit later about that uh, artist's inspiration for him painting that painting. This text is actually in close proximity to another lesson that Jesus gave on children. If you were to turn back just one chapter to the chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus giving another lesson in which a child plays a prominent part. As a matter of fact, the context of what's going on here is Jesus is talking about who is the greatest. If you, if you would, just flip back to Matthew chapter 18 and read with me, uh, beginning in verse 1. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea well you know as we read these two texts the one from matthew 18 about children and then the one that we are focusing on this morning from matthew 19 about children we can't help but come to these texts with a couple of questions i i hope that as you're thinking about this text and thinking about how it might apply to your life and and how you have realized it in your life you'll be thinking about some of these questions specifically with regard to the context in which both of these lessons come to us in the Gospel of Matthew. The, the first question is when Jesus uses the example of a child, what was in the mind of his hearers? How were they thinking about the concepts that Jesus was talking about? Things like greatness, things like children, things like blessing. A second question might be would his predominantly Jewish audience? Would they have understood what he meant about children that would have been significantly different from the Roman and Greek understanding, the the culture in which the hearers of Jesus' lesson lived? That is, is would they have realized that what Jesus was saying was something significantly different than what they were being taught uh, by the Greek and Roman culture about children? I think a third question that would be good for us to think about together today would be, do Christians, people like me and you who are followers of Jesus Christ, do we have a specific view and understanding of family, of children, and of culture that is, well, specifically unique from our Jewish forebears or even in the culture in which we currently find ourselves? In many ways, there's a universal experience when it comes to children, isn't there? No matter what nation you're from or ethnicity you're from, depending on how much culture has influenced a human being, uh, when it just comes to the God-given natural aspects of what it means to see a child as an adult or to hold a child as a parent, As a matter of fact, we actually have copies that date back, are you ready? 2,000 years before Jesus of lullabies that were written in Mesopotamian uh, cultures like the Akkadian Empire and the the old Assyrian Empire that talk about how a mother deals with a sleepless baby. Now, now, let's think about that. That's over 4,000 years ago. And the same struggles that moms have today with their babies who just refuse to go to sleep is the same struggles that a mother way back among the Akkadians and the Assyrians would have struggled with as well. As a matter of fact, in the Code of Hammurabi, that great ancient code of law that dates 1,700 years before Jesus, there's a whole section of that law in that mesopotamian culture uh, that talk about how adopted children are to be protected the law was intending that children who were adopted into families would be protected would be allowed to inherit and have the same rights as a biological child it's something to really take some semblance of comfort in that for the length of recorded history the actions, the struggles that we have with children haven't changed all that much. But, you knew there was a but coming, right? We also have customs that were in place during the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire that are a bit more unsettling. For example, when a child was born in the Roman Empire, uh, the first thing that the midwife would do after she had cut the umbilical cord was she would lay the child on the floor. And this was assigned to the head of household, most commonly the husband of the wife or the father of the child. And that head of household had a decision to make. He could either pick up the child, in which case the child would be accepted as a part of the family, or he could leave the child on the floor. If he left the child on the floor, there were two things that would often have happen. Either they would just leave the child there on the floor, to die of exposure or in families that were maybe you might want to say a bit more civil they might take the child to designated parts of the city where they would would abandon the child in certain areas or certain buildings that were specifically designed to leave abandoned children and what is most horrific about those sections of the city is that one of two things would happen there Either the child would die of exposure in the city outside or the child would be picked up, maybe sometimes by a couple who wanted to have another child and for whatever reason weren't able to. But more commonly, these children would have been picked up by slave traders. They would have been raised in a horrific kind of setting where they would be old enough, sometimes around the age of five or six, where they would be sold into slavery. Now, as we think about all of these things, they sound pretty abhorrent to us. But to the ancient Romans, it really wasn't that big of a deal, which in and of itself raises a lot of questions. As a matter of fact, to the Romans, the whole concept of the founding of their empire and the city of Rome was built upon the myth of Romulus and Remus, who were twins that were abandoned at birth and a she-wolf adopted. And those two boys grew up to not only found the city of Rome, but the Roman Empire itself. You might be familiar with how that story ends, actually. It was, you might say, a survival of the fittest. And that was what was most respected in the world of the ancients. Abandoning children was common in the time of Jesus, too. Not so much in the Jewish culture, but certainly in the culture that was overtaking Time and time again, that ancient and proud people known as the nation of Israel. The Jews struggled with the culture in which they found themselves, both in the time of Jesus with the Romans and in cultures that had overtaken them in years past. As a matter of fact, as those Jews were sitting there watching Jesus give his point about the little children, their minds probably went back to the stories they were told by their parents and grandparents during the Exodus when they were conquering the land of the Canaanites, the promised land, the land that would become the nation of Israel, where the predominant god that was worshipped, one of them at least, was the god Molech. Molech, the god of fire and war. Idols were built of Molech over ovens that would be stoked with heat. And above those ovens as uh, throughout the body of Molech would be these receptacles in which mothers would place their newborn babies as sacrifices to this pagan god. You can imagine how horrific that death would have been for that child. Probably some of the listeners of Jesus might have remembered that part of God's judgment on the Canaanites was because of that practice of child sacrifice. And some of them might have even held their head in shame because they knew that even they weren't immune to such horrific occurrences, for some of the Jews adopted the same practices of the Canaanites, sacrificing their own children as well, until the reign of King Josiah of Judah, the 16th king, who finally declared child sacrifice abhorrent and ended it for good. Throughout many of the ancient empires, prior to the rise of Christendom as a world influencer, children preserved the family line. That was what their purpose was. But they were also fair game to be sold as slaves, traded in political contracts, and sexually abused. Sometimes even killed because their fathers or their uncles saw them as competitors for power and popularity. In many ways, the Jewish culture, the culture of those listening to Jesus, brought a significant influence of civility to the ancient world as they sought uh, to hold on to their distinctive worldview through Assyrian occupation, through Babylonian conquest, through Persian occupation, the Greeks, and now the Roman cultural oppression, that the nation of Israel was enduring. From all of this, Christianity emerges from Judaism, finding itself at odds with a larger culture, finding itself carrying on the great teachings that had been handed to them by their Jewish forebears about the dignity of every human being, except they were entering into this great war, this great battle with culture armed with the weapon of Jesus' teachings. Armed with that weapon, our view as Christians, our view of children, our view of human life, would begin to change the people around us. Children were no longer valued because of what they could give to adults, as base as those desires might have been. But because of Christianity, because of Jesus' teachings, Children begin, we begin to understand children as having value in and of themselves. Because all people are created in the image of God, and because all people are children of God, that child, therefore, is a child of God. And so what began to happen is you and I as Christians begin to accept children as persons. Not not, not on the basis of their reception into a family or their usefulness to the community, but simply because they were born. Because they're viewed as God's. And they're no longer our children, but they're God's children. And God entrusts those children to us for a purpose. By the 4th century, as Christianity begins to have more and more influence on the world, as the horrific persecution of the followers of Christ begins to fade in the distance, and the church begins to emerge as a voice of reason, a voice of compassion, a voice of order, a voice of love. One particular pastor, a pastor who served in the land of Caesarea, but was from Asia Minor or present-day Turkey, His name was Basil. He's remembered by the church these days as a doctor of the church, a teacher of the church. Basil the Great. Basil was a unique young pastor. Every morning and every evening he would leave his church and go to the town dump where he would gather all of the newborn babies. Now, just that phrase alone ought to cause you to perk your ears and say what even in the time of basil it was common that if you would to have a child and you didn't want the child for whatever reason you just simply took the child to the dump where the child would die from exposure but basil every morning and every evening would gather up those children that had been abandoned and would take them back to his church and there he would raise them along with his sisters along with the men and women of the church, and they were raised not just uh, in order to sell into slavery as had been uh, centuries before, but they were taught, they they were educated, they were given a sense of purpose and belonging and value. Many historians believe that it was Basil who was the first person to found an orphanage. An orphanage that was intended to raise children who had been left by their parents, but not to be sold into slavery, but that the child would be given a sense of well being and sent forth in life to thrive and prosper. As a matter of fact, if you read more about that, you'll see that in many cases, most historians credit Basil as the father of the earliest Christian communities these young children who were raised together developed relationships as brothers and sisters, and that kind of community would be the model upon which the establishment of monasteries and convents would ultimately be based, which, incidentally, was a significant way that knowledge, education, reading, writing, scientific research was preserved during the dark ages or as we like to say these days the middle ages i mean think about that for a second and i don't think i'm stretching any imagination here but the technology that you and i are currently using at this very minute is a descendant from a tradition of learning a tradition of science a tradition of research a tradition of advancement that dates back and was preserved by those Christian communities that developed out of a desire to see that children were given the best that they could be given because they were children of God. You know, sometimes it is easy to fall into the trap of our own culture's understanding of human life. You know, that expediency and convenience are what is important. I mean, after all, we frame our whole world around those values. I want things to be easy. I want things to be comfortable. And how much of a temptation it is for those things that might demand More of us than we are willing to give, we will discard. We will abandon. We will ignore. You see, Jesus' lesson in Matthew 18 and in our text today in Matthew 19, you know what this lesson is really about? It's really about being countercultural. Although the Jewish listeners to Jesus would have understood the value of a child, although they would have understood the sense of a child's innocence, a child's complete trust, a child's total dependence, it would have been very strange to a Gentile listener, which is probably why it has such a profound effect on Gentiles. You know, like you and me. When we heard the gospel... When we became followers of Jesus Christ, it became utterly apparent to us that this call into the life as a disciple of Jesus Christ demanded a complete change of our worldview. Now, what does it mean to apply this text today? What does it mean mean to think about how this text influences me and you today? Well, we live in interesting times, don't we? You probably have heard that phrase, may you always live in interesting times, actually considered a curse by the culture that gave us that phrase. And in many ways, that may be true. Now, I need to be really careful here, brothers and sisters, because so many of us in the church today are influenced more by the greater culture on the outside with its diverse and contrary perspectives than we are on the very demanding teachings of jesus i don't want to appear to be judgmental but i do want to be clear and yet at the same time the clarity that i'm searching and the clarity that i'm trying to convey is a clarity that you and i are discerning together all things work together for good for those who love and trust god and are called according to his purpose that's what the apostle paul says and i think that one of the good things that has come out of this pandemic is the time and opportunity to reflect on our culture both within and outside of the church can i let you in on a little secret we pastors and elders and church leaders have been worried for decades over what we saw as an increasingly customer service minded nature in the church now this is complicated and it's going to make some of us feel uncomfortable and it may even irritate some of us but it's not offered with a spiteful spirit it's offered with a sense of invitation i want my music this way I want the sermon this long. I want the topics covered in the sermon to be these topics, and I want them covered from this perspective. I've actually heard faith leaders and elders say at the table in their prayers, Lord, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you however we want. There's no precedence in Scripture for that. As a matter of fact, God is quite clear how He is to be worshipped, in spirit and in truth. And those are difficult things to come to grips with sometimes. As an amateur historian myself, I've witnessed firsthand the anger and ire of people when I have shared with them how Christianity has typically taught and lived about its expectations upon fellow believers. And the truth is is that Christianity is not a buffet where you get to pick whatever it is that you want off the buffet and you leave the yucky stuff for the person who's behind you. Nowhere in the Scriptures do we get that image. Christianity isn't something that we just pick and choose it's not something that we just decide well this fits my life but that doesn't there is a demand of the whole of the gospel on the whole of our lives it's not something that we compartmentalize on a particular day or in a particular moment but it is to consume our very being And sometimes, I'll admit, as the church, even as a pastor myself, in an effort to bring in the world, we may have, from time to time, allowed the world to to determine the scope of Jesus' teachings and their applications to our life. Being a follower of Jesus isn't for those expecting an easy life, where we revel in our popularity, but it's a life of discipline. It's a life of sanctification where we are called to do the hardest thing of all, to love our neighbor, to pick up our cross and carry it for the benefit of another. My wife, Shauna, and I are blessed to serve with one of our small groups here at South Suburban Church. It has a large number of young families in that group, and when we gather, we can see the struggle and the love that our fellow parents have in raising their children in an increasingly secular and divisive world. A world that today takes pleasure in insulting and demeaning one another. Before the pandemic, the opportunities to partner with our parents in raising their children in the faith was easier. We could do it right here in the building. We didn't have to worry about physical distancing or masks or, 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 or uh, hand sanitizer. And yet... I don't think any of us saw the gift of that opportunity until it was taken away from us. Too often we might have chosen other activities in our life, or we just weren't aware of the precious little time, maybe an hour or so a week, to open the richness of Jesus' teachings to the young minds of our children. Alexander Campbell, one of the principal founders of the Christian church movement, wrote an article in the year 1840 where he said that the four most important things we as parents, as the church, do for children is to ensure that children develop physically, intellectually, morally, and in courtesy and social relationships. He went on to say that if we haven't adequately ensured that these areas of development are done in our children by the time they reach adolescence, it'll probably never happen in adulthood. His opinion on the necessity of the development of every human being in these four areas would be what would motivate him to go on and found Bethany College that same year, one of the oldest and most respected colleges and universities in the Christian church movement. And since 1840, over 50 colleges have been founded with the intention to train the whole person schools like pepperdine university texas christian university jarvis christian college what's my dream my dream is is that we probably won't see life return to normal for a while and so in the midst of that reality my dream is to figure out how can we reboot our lives How can we relaunch who we are as believers? How can we relaunch the church of Jesus Christ into a world? How can we look back at those things that we succumbed to, that in many ways were customer service-minded? And now we look forward to ways in which we can be faithful to the call of the gospel, as unpopular as that might be in some situations. I I dream of a day when, when... congregations like South Suburban Christian Church can be a resource center for parents seeking to teach their children the faith in their homes, develop practices of of reading and prayer and Bible study, and not just reading the Bible, that needs to be a part of it, but reading good literature. I don't want to sound judgmental, but how much better might it be if we just turn the television off for an hour and talk? Talk and read great books, and dream great dreams, and value the gift of virtue, of love, of sacrifice. I dream and vision that our seasoned members will come alongside and mentor our young families, and that we'll see that our investment in families is an investment in our community But even more importantly, it is simply receiving the gift of God and valuing it above everything else. At the end of days, when death comes over all of us, it, it won't be our positions and power and influence and houses and cars that will define who we are. But the moments of great love and pride have been when children have stepped to the pulpit and said, My mom was a great mom. My dad was a great dad. He was a good man who taught the children in his life. She was a good woman who shared her wisdom with all. That's the mark of a great life. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to receive children from God. In just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And as we listen to those lyrics, I pray that you'll ask yourself a couple of questions. Am I coming to God as a skeptical child, wondering if the tooth fairy is real In my father's house there's a place for me I'm a child of God at the beginning of the message I shared with you the artist Carl Christian Vogel von Vogelstein and his painting Uh, let the little children come to me one might think that the inspiration of that painting was the text that was read today from Matthew 19 or even Matthew 18 but it wasn't the case The inspiration of uh, the text, the, the, the text that gave him the inspiration, was actually from John 13. Let me read that to you. John 13, verse 33. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before he's about to give them the great commandment. Little children. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. You see, that's the new commandment that all of us agree with. But where do we get the strength? Where does the fortitude come? comes with accepting. It comes with realizing that you are a child of God. Loved. You are loved so much that God the Father gave His only Son to bear the weight of the world's brokenness on the cross. The sin of the world. My sin. My rebellion, my anger, my laziness, my sense of entitlement. And even in the midst of all of that, God says, I love you, my child. And he loves you. Will you run to the embrace of God the Father, trusting and knowing that there's a place for you in his house. Would you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept him as Lord and Savior? If you have made that decision today, will you let us know? Will you click on the box if you're on our online.church platform? If you're listening on one of our other platforms, will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com and let us know so that together we can joyfully celebrate that we are all children of god will you pray with me merciful god thank you for the gift of children in our life and give us the strength and the fortitude in a culture that is too often dismissive and concerned about its own convenience to recognize the profound generosity of your gift to us of a new life. Of a new life in a child and a new life in Christ. Some being born today for the first time in the flesh and others being born today again anew in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.